Join with me around the throne of grace. Let's seek our God and Father's face together. Let's all pray. Father in heaven, our eternal God, we come once again into the presence of the majesty on high. We've entered within the veil. By faith, we have come to the most holy place in heaven. We thank thee that at the right hand, there is Jesus Christ, our great high priest. We are pleading his blood. We are pleading his merits. We are pleading, Lord, his name as we come and call upon thee. We acknowledge our God that thou art a God, the God, who cries out for his people to call upon him. We cannot read thy word without realizing and being brought face to face continually that thou dost delight in the praying of thy people. The continual exhortations that thou hast given us to seek thy face. The many, many promises that thou hast attached to the throne of grace. The, the blessings that we have found in thy word that fall upon the people who seek the Lord. My Lord, there is so much in thy holy word that shows us how thou hast made it so plain with much prayer. There is much blessing, and yet with little prayer, there is little blessing. So we commence this time of worship with praise and with prayer. We thank thee, Father, that we can come because sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus. There is no condemnation now that we dread. We have been covered with his righteousness. We thank thee that the ground we stand upon is blood ground, it is redemption ground. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We are not depending, Lord, upon a decision we made as a child. Our hope for heaven is not in what others think of us. Our hope of heaven is not, Lord, in some prayer that we have made. Our hope of heaven is not in our faith. Lord, our hope for glory is in Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen. We thank Thee that He alone is the Savior of sinners. By His name and His name only can salvation be gotten, obtained, and enjoyed. We're here this morning, Father, because not only has Christ saved us, and we praise Thee for that, but the Lord Jesus continues to save us, continues to save us from ourselves and from Satan and from this world and from our sin. We rejoice that He goes on and carries out that gracious work of driving sin from our lives transforming us by his Spirit into his very likeness. We thank thee, our God, that we're not what we used to be, because Jesus Christ is carrying on the work he began and will carry it on until it's completed. We rejoice this morning that Jesus Christ is no quitter. He will complete the work he was sent to do. Not only does that mean, our God, that he will sanctify us completely, body, soul, and spirit, so much so that when we see him, we will be like him. But our God, it also means that Jesus Christ 
will be the one in glory to whom we will give continual praise, the Lamb of God. We will say indeed and sing indeed, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Father, we pray this morning in that very precious name that thou wilt war against Satan and his devices, that thou wilt shield us with thy grace and thy mercy, that thou wilt forgive us of our sins, sins we know, Lord, that if we allow them to go on unconfessed without saying the same thing, without agreeing with thee, that they are sin indeed. We're only going to harm ourselves. We're going to hinder the working of the Spirit of God. We're not going to, to feel the influences of the Holy Ghost in our hearts. It'll just be a church service, and it won't be a meeting with our God. It won't be a time where grace is wrought mightily upon our souls. So, Lord, forgive us, we pray. Dear Savior, wash our feet that we can walk with Thee, we can have fellowship with Thee, that we can abide near unto Thee and not walk at a distance from Thee. O oh, our Father, we, we think about this land of ours. We think about the darkness that is pervading every corner of society. And Lord, as... as much as we have seen in life already, we still find ourselves not just alarmed, but shocked at times with the rapidity of this pace of sinfulness that spreads across this land and indeed throughout the world. The wholehearted, open, avowed abandonment of anything to do with thee, with thy truth, with Jesus Christ, with gospel realities. It is alarming, Lord. No matter how much we've read in thy word that the last days are going to be awful days, days of great persecution for the church, still, Lord, when we see what's taken place in our brief lifetime, it is nothing short of startling. And our God, we... We come to Thee acknowledging that what is so needful now are old-fashioned Christians, not those who are trying to blend in with the world under the guise of trying to reach them, but Christians who will stand out from the world and stand up to the world and stand for Jesus Christ and stand for the old gospel and stand for the old path. No, Lord, it's not popular, but oh, give us grace to cast popularity aside. You know, the Lord Jesus warned us, it's not a good thing when all men speak well of us. They certainly didn't speak well of thy son. And Lord, we want to follow in their footsteps. We pray our God we will know, even this morning, teaching from thy word that will challenge us, that will show us the right way to go. That will make us more like the Savior, acting more like Christians should be acting, whether at home or in the church or in the world. We do want to enjoy the good life as it's defined by the Word of God, not by the world. Come, we pray, Spirit of the Lord, and open up these minds of ours that are often slow to take it in, that are found often slow to believe what the Word of God says, 
We pray that thou wouldst, by thine own gracious power, be the preacher today. Speak to us right where we are. Feed the flock of God. Guide their steps in paths of righteousness. Turn them, their feet away from any evil way. Grant our God that thou wilt especially breathe a breath of revival into our prayer closets. That we'll find our hearts burdened to pray as we never have before. Believing all the while, Lord, it would be a great token for good. For we know that when thou dost determine to bless thy people, thou dost first set them to pray. So, Lord, set us to praying in a fashion we haven't known before. And give this morning light from heaven upon the path. Show us Christ, and it sufficeth us. In his name we pray. Amen. And amen. First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> we make our way through Peter's first epistle. Slowly but surely. First Peter chapter 3. We'll begin the reading. Verse 8. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Let's all hear. The Lord's inspired, infallible, holy word. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrary wise blessing knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. We'll end our reading in verse 12, trusting God to give his own blessing to that public reading of his word for his name's sake. Bow your head with me, please, in a moment of prayer before we turn to the preaching of his word. Let's all pray. Father in heaven, it is in Jesus' name that we now turn to the book of God we need a word from the Lord, and this man needs the grace of the Spirit to preach that word. Thy people, Lord, need ears to hear. Take away tiredness of mind and body. Make us remember, Lord, what we're about as we listen to the word of God. This is thy word, and thou hast declared that thou dost speak to thy people. It's through the foolishness of preaching that sinners are saved and saints are built up. Enable us, our God, this morning by thy power to take on board, to take into our hearts, to embrace what thou hast so plainly said in this portion. And Lord, not only to believe that it's the truth and not just to believe it's good truth, truth that's good that ought to be practiced, 
but Lord, to bring it out of the school of theory into the school, the life of practice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We're returning to take another look at this section of chapter 3, which I've entitled, How to Live a Long Good Life. And in verse 10, Peter writes, For he that will love life and see good days. To love life not only speaks of wanting to live a long time, but the apostle combines that wanting to live a long time with wanting to see what he calls good days. Who wants to live a long life if that life is filled with nothing but evil days, days that are void of any of the blessings of God on the life. If Solomon said it, you can see why people who know nothing of truly good days would say that they hate life. Sadly, many have hated life to such a degree that they have ended their own life thinking that death would bring an end to their misery, their suffering. Tragically, they have discovered to their horror that they wake up in hell and that their misery has only begun because they hated life. They would hate hell a whole lot more. But that's never to be the case for a Christian. Peter clearly intimates that it's a good thing to love life. It's a good thing to want to live a long time. So that you can see good days at the hand of God. This would have had special meaning for those to whom the apostle is writing, we saw back in chapter 1 what these young believers in the Lord were going through. These were hard times. Times of great persecution, great suffering, and times of great sorrow in their lives. They were living in a society that was moreover very hostile uh, to them and to their faith in Christ. They were despised because they were Christians. Therefore, it would be very easy for them to feel that life wasn't worth living and that they were not going to see any good days such as was life for them at the moment. So Peter tells them if they really want to love life and to see good days in spite of all that they're going through, this is how to go about it. If you want to see if you want to love life and not hate it, and you want to see good days, then here's God's way. On either side of those opening words of verse 10, the Holy Spirit charts a very clear course for Christians who want to know how to live a long, good life. His attention at this point in the epistle is on how Christians are to treat each other how the body of Christ is to interact, the kind of attitudes and behavior that will be found among believers who want to live the good life in the truest sense of the word, not the way the world means it, 
but in the truest sense of the word, to enjoy the good life. Last Lord's Day, we only considered the first word of instruction in verse 8. He begins with, be ye of one mind. Be ye all of one mind. The point I drew from that is that if we as Christians love life and want to see good days, then we must always, we must always seek for harmony in the church. He's dealt with their behaviors that should be in the world, in society, civil government. He's dealt with it as it should be at the workplace, in this case, slave-master relationship, how it should be in the home between husbands and wives, and now he turns to the church. We must cultivate and show by our actions that we're united and not divided. It's always the devil's aim to divide and through the division to conquer. In any godly relationship, whether it's the marriage, whether it's the family, whether it's the church, whatever it is, it's always, let's divide them and then I can conquer them. And so there is the, a plethora of truth in the Word of God that's always pointing to this need to stay united, to show that unity, to be all of the same mind, the harmony United, of course, primarily in the essential doctrines of the faith, as well as in the belief that those doctrines must be practiced. I say essential doctrines because there are doctrines held by believers that are not essential in determining whether or not someone is a Christian. Essential doctrines are fundamental. They're non-negotiable truths that have to be believed in order to be a Christian. That's the basis for all true unity in the body of Christ, holding to those core, non-negotiable doctrines of the Word of God. And that unity of mind he's referring to must be had when it comes to believing that doctrine without deeds is useless. That's got to be believed. It's not simply enough to have a confession of faith, core fundamental doctrines that we all hold to be true. It does no good if there's not the belief and if we're not unified on the fact that those doctrines must be worked out in the life. That's Christianity. It's not just faith, it's practice. Together. Faith without works is a dead faith, as James says. So if we're going to live a long, good life, then we must have the same mind when it comes to this need to back up what we say with our lips, with our life. Our life has to back up our lips. Other than that, all we have is a dead faith, a dead orthodoxy. So... These are things, fundamental things, that we must be united on in the church of Jesus Christ. We saw that in order for this same-mindedness to exist in the body of Christ in a congregation of believers, for it to exist and to flourish, there, there, must, there must be humility. You can just think about when you think about being of the same, of one mind, the same-mindedness, 
it is going to require humility because humility is always the secret of harmony. Just as conceit and arrogance always harms the unity of believers, so humble-mindedness always promotes it. The great way to achieve such a spirit, same-mindedness, is to have a proper estimation of yourself. We won't be truly humble unless we have a proper estimation of ourselves. Uh, to take the words of Paul, I am what I am by the grace of God. To have a proper estimation of others, and the thinking there is, they're better than I am. Let each esteem other better than themselves. That was written to all the Lord's people. That's the task he sets before us. And especially to have the mind of Christ, that this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You can rest assured that if this unity of mind uh, is not highly valued, and sought after in a church, there's not going to be a whole lot of true harmony. You can have all the church suppers and dinners on the ground that you want. There's not going to be true harmony if that spirit is not sought after and cultivated, nurtured, developed and practiced. But there will be strife and division and hurt. And those are things that you don't want to see if you want to live a long, good life. Peter continues. Not only must we always seek for harmony in the church through having a unity of mind, but Peter says in the second place that if we want to live a long, good life, if we want to live the good life, we must nurture a unity, a feeling. Not just this unity of mind, but a unity of feeling. Be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Having compassion one of another. That is unity of feeling. Before even looking at what that means, you can see immediately that that harmony, that Christian unity, is not merely defined by an agreement of mind, holding the same doctrines, and having the same aim or purpose in life. It's also about having a, a unity, a feeling. There is a mutual feeling among Christians because they are united and to Christ and indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of Christ that indwells them. Having compassion one of another. Five words. It's only one word in the Greek. And a matter of fact, it's a word that's only used here by Peter. In fact, Peter actually has five words that only found in this epistle. Anywhere else you won't see them. There are cognates and things, but it's, it's like the Holy Ghost gave Peter a, 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 its own vocabulary to deal with this, living the good life. 
sympathies. You can hear sympathy in that. Sympathies. Sum simply means with. Pathes. You know the word pathos. The Greek word means feeling. The word sympathetic could be used as long as we don't limit it to its meaning as it's commonly understood, which is feelings of pity and sorrow for those who are suffering. That's normally how we think of, we sympathize with them. We have feelings of sympathy and, and pity for those who are enduring hardship. That, this word, however, goes beyond that. It includes it, but it goes beyond it. The word that Peter uses is broader than that. It speaks of entering into the feelings of others, whether they're joyful feelings or whether they're sorrowful feelings. It covers both. Paul wrote to the church of Rome in chapter 12, verse 15, Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that do weep. You are entering into their feelings, whether they're happy feelings or sad feelings. The requirement is of the Holy Ghost to enter into them, to be sympathetic with those feelings. And... Paul deals with the subject of unity in the church at Corinth that was, of course, as you know, plagued with strife and division of all kinds. They didn't have a whole lot of harmony, a lot of gifts, but not a lot of harmony. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12 that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. You see the broadness of the term of having sympathy with the feelings of believers in the church. It's this unity of feeling on which the apostle grounds his plea to the Hebrew believers to remember the Christians who were in prison for their faith in Christ. Hebrews 13, verse 3, Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, as if you are in prison with them. Remember them like that. Think about them like that, as if you were there. And them which suffer adversity as being yourself also in the body. Share in their feelings. In other words, this this unity of feeling, this entering into the feelings of fellow believers, whether feelings of joy or sorrow, stems from the practice of considering the condition of others as our own condition. It can't happen otherwise. Considering the conditions of others as our own condition. Just consider yourself as if you're in prison. And look upon their sorrow as your sorrow. Or look upon their joy as your joy. If they're honored, it's as if you are honored. And you're happy about it. That means, practically speaking... 
that we don't look on them from a distance. We don't look on from a distance when a fellow Christian is suffering. But as much as possible, we enter into their suffering, their heartache, and their pain as though it were our own. That's exactly what was happening when Jesus went with Mary and Martha, you recall, to the tomb of Lazarus. John chapter 11, verse 33, When Jesus therefore saw her, that's Mary, weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. They were weeping. And he entered into, he sympathized with them. And they're weeping. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah put it like this in chapter 63 of his prophecy, verse 9. Speaking of the Lord, in all their affliction he was afflicted. In all of their affliction he was afflicted. Same is true of rejoicing with those who rejoice. Remember what happened in Luke chapter 11 when the seven disciples, he sent out the seventy on a mission trip, and they came back to report to him after the time was done. They came back to report to him on how things went. And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And Jesus said, of course... Let your rejoicing be that your names are written in heaven. That's the real joy here. And in verse 21, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Now that's... that's that's a big chunk to swallow. He rejoiced, they were rejoicing, and he rejoiced in spirit with him. And what did he rejoice over? That his father had hid these things, hid them from those who thought they were wise, and he revealed them unto babes. That brought him joy. I think you can readily see how this kind of spirit attitude is so contrary to pride or selfishness, self-importance. Pride's response to the success, to the blessing, to the honoring that the Lord gives to another believer will always be one of jealousy and envy. Not I'm so glad for you. I am really so happy that you've gotten this blessing. Pride will say, I didn't get it. God didn't bless me with that. I needed it. They got it. I didn't. No, that's not sympathy. That is not entering into their joy 
because they've been honored and blessed by the Lord. See how selfish it is? It's all about me. It's all about what I should have or shouldn't have. The humble Christian rejoices. Why? As I said, it comes from, well, their condition is really my condition. It's as if I was honored. That's the thinking. Because we're members of the same body. The unity of feeling makes that so. It's not just unity of mind, but the unity of feeling makes that a reality. Selfishness won't seek to enter into the sorrow or grief of a brother or sister because that would disturb their happiness. That would disturb their peace. They just don't want to go there. They do not want to go there. They don't want to to engage in uh, entering into the feelings of someone who is suffering. They don't want to make that their own because they just want to be happy. Selfishness will not weep with those who weep, will not grieve with those who grieve. You know what the selfish, proud person says? Suck it up. Get real. Stiff upper lip. You can do it. That's not how to enjoy the good life. Where there is a cultivation of this unity of feeling in the body of Christ, there you will find a sharing of each other's griefs. It will be a real sharing you'll enter into. You know what it is on a very real level if you have children. You've known what that's like to see your children suffer. And you don't even think about it. You suffer with them. You do feel the pain. You do feel the hurt. It's just natural. Why? Because they're family. They're your children. Or that's your brother, or that's your sister, or that's your mom, or that's your dad. You can look upon others that aren't your family, perhaps, and, well, it doesn't really phase you. And that's exactly what Peter is getting at here. This is, this is the church. This is the body. These are brothers and sisters. And so we enter into, enter into their feelings. And they weep, we weep. If there's unity of feeling, if it's there, you can't do it apart from that. It'll all be human emotion and then it won't be something spiritual. This is something very spiritual. It's brought on by the Holy Spirit.
And that sympathizing with them, that entering into their grief and their sorrow, won't fail to be shown even when the Christian brother or sister's sorrow has been caused by their own sin and failure. Did you get that one? I get it when someone has lost a loved one and you grieve with them. But... Does that mean that because the grief or the sorrow has been caused because that child of God has really blown it and has brought themselves into real problems and they're hurting because of it? Do we shut them off? And do we say, in essence, hey, we wouldn't say that to their face, perhaps, perhaps. You made your bed, you lie in it. Well, that, that comes to haunt us, doesn't it? Because that spirit is easily found within us. But it's so countermanded by the scriptures, it's so clear that is not, that is not unity, that is not harmony in the church, that is not what it is to Have compassion. Pride will mount the judge's bench and criticize and condemn. But grace will come down off the bench and mourn with that brother with that sister not condoning the sin but sympathizing with their hurt and their pain in spite of the sin true sympathy is always humble sympathy Surely that fact beats at what the heart, at the heart of what Paul was saying to the Galatians in chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Few things show where a Christian is spiritually than how he deals with another man's sins. Few things show where a Christian is spiritually than how he deals with another man's sins. I'm glad that I can read in Hebrews 4.15 that I have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of my infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as I was, or I am, yet without sin. A careful reading of that very well-known verse in its context will show that the infirmity, literally the weaknesses that the apostle was referring to, was not simply about the troubles and trials of life. Someone to have sympathy for us when we're having a hard time. He was referring to the sins of God's people. 
That's what you must understand by the word infirmities. Let me put it to it like this. I have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of my sins. Now it makes sense when you read, but in all points was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now, does that not open it up? Does that not give us a window into the text? He's dealing with the sins of the Lord's people. And how does Christ respond to our sins, to our failures? Condemnation? No. He sympathizes with us. Why? Because he was tempted by the devil to sin. Yet unlike us, he never did sin, never could he sin. But the Lord, as far as he could go, as much as is possible, enters into the sorrows that our sins and that our failures bring into our lives. He's touched by them. That means that when you're sitting there in your chair at home and you're commiserating because of your awful sight of your sin and your failure and you're just weeping before the Lord, he enters into those feelings. He has compassion. He sympathizes. He's never forgotten one moment because he cannot forget He's never forgotten for one moment what it was like when Satan came at him again and again and again. He would never fail. But he certainly felt the power of evil work against him. And that, brothers and sisters, is how we're supposed to be. doesn't take much spirituality to be a judge and yet you know you think that that's the thinking by and large the real spiritual ones they're able to judge and to find fault and to condemn and to bring down well that's not what the word of God shows how you deal with another man's sin shows where you are in your walk with God It's not hard to see, you know, where this spirit is cultivated in the life of a church. That church is going to know unity. And its people are going to love life and not hate it. They're going to love life and want to live to see good days. You can understand that is put into practice. That'll be pleasant. The third thing he says now. If we want to live a long, good life, then Peter says we must practice 
brotherly love. Yes, there must be this one-mindedness, this unity of mind and this unity of feeling, but we also must practice brotherly love. Love as brethren. Philadelphos is the word. The only time that word occurs in the New Testament. Philadelphos. One word, really. Brother love. Brother love. While I'll speak of what brother love looks like in practice in a moment, what I want us to see first is that it always begins with an attitude. It always begins with a certain mindset. Brother love begins with an attitude. I'm not going to practice brother love if I don't first view other Christians as my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not going to exercise, I'm not going to show brother love if I don't have this attitude, these are my brothers and sisters. How in the world will I treat you as I would my own flesh and blood brother if I don't look at you as my brother or my sister in the family of God? I'm not going to approach it in the right way. Remember, Paul has been dealing all along with how a, a Christianist, I should say Peter, conduct himself as a Christian before a lost world and in the home and now in the church. And it's obvious that critical, therefore, to a happy and a healthy church, as well as being able to enjoy the good life is this deep conviction, deep conviction that we are family. We're family. That, that, that opens up such a, a wealth of application. We're family. The local church, this local church, is my family. You are my brothers and sisters. And we have a bond that can never be broken because it is a bond that is in Christ. If you can take yourself out of Christ, then the bond can be broken. But we all know that that can happen. Yes, there can be a break in our fellowship, but never a break in our relationship, to put it simply. There can be a break in our fellowship, but there can never be a break in our relationship. We will always be in a relationship of family, of brothers and sisters, because we are children of God. And as children of God, we're in the family of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Being in a church is not simply a matter, therefore, of attending services and saying our hellos and how are yous to the people we see each week. Is, is, that, is that all that being in a flesh and blood family is about? Is that all you do? Is that what family life is about? Hi, good morning. How are you? How do you feel? 
How'd you sleep last night? What's for dinner? If that's all that there is, something's critically wrong. Family. Then we should realize that it's not what family in the church is all about either. I, I fully realize that there will always be those in the church of Christ who are not going to make a whole lot of effort at practicing brother love in the family. That will always be the case. And there will always be those who feel that they are a better fit in one local assembly, one church family, than they are in another. I get that. But the norm, the norm, is that those who join with an assembly of saints must constantly view themselves as members of that family if they're going to love life and see good days. And, and so, having established that, that this begins with an attitude, how we view each other, if we're family, what does brother love look like in practice? Well, think about what that love should look like in an earthly family, and then you'll have some pointers as to how it should be practiced in the spiritual family. First, you'll have, you'll have a real interest in your brother or sister. I'm not going to say sister every time, just take that universal brother for all of them. You'll have a real interest in your brother. It's not just that you will show, but you'll actually have a real interest in them. And that looks like something. You'll seek to find out about them. What, what's their name? Where do they live? What do you work at? When were you saved? And as the interest is maintained, the, the knowledge you accumulate grows and is part of a relationship. You can't have a relationship without having an interest in someone. It's not going to be there. You won't bother to ask them any of those questions. You won't try to find out anything about them. But that's not family, you see. That's, that's not family. Secondly, you'll put up with a lot from your brother... Isn't that how it is in real earthly families? There are things that 
You just won't put up with outside the family that you would inside the family. There are things that you would not tolerate outside the family, but you will inside the family because they're family. The biblical term is long-suffering. You'll put up with a lot. Your brother might say things or do things that really irritate you. But you don't leave the family over it. Do you? You put up with it. Because you realize full well, remember, you're seeking to walk humbly with God you realize that there are things about you that the other members of the family have to put up with as well. I mean, (laughs) churches aren't full of these perfect Christians. We're very imperfect. We're very flawed. So it's not going to ever be a point in time where, okay, we've all attained and we all get along now. No. Don't take this the wrong way. But I have put up with you and you have put up with me. Right? Believe you me, I mean, 2002, we're 17 years now. You kind of really get to know people after that long a spell. You, You know my faults and flaws. You see things that you would like to have changed in me, right? Don't tell me you haven't thought about it. Don't tell me you haven't talked about it. I mean, I am not in outer space. I live in a very real world. I know how people are. And even I hope you've prayed about those very things as I have you. But that's about long-suffering. You know? Which leads me to say, thirdly, you will, you will forgive your brother over and over again. Family? I mean, you know, I had three siblings. One was a whole lot older than me. I say a whole lot, seven years older. Brother was five years older. Sister was just two years younger. So Lisa and I were sort of close growing up. And my sister and I, you know... Many occasions had one of those, you know, just old knock-down, drag-out fights. But we were found back playing together again. We forgave each other and didn't hold it against each other because we're family. 
So it is in the church. Love, you see, the word says, love covereth a multitude of sins. And love forgives a multitude of sins. Love doesn't try to shine the spotlight. No, cover. Forgives. You want to live a good life in this church? Then you better be ready to do a whole lot of forgiving. You will help your brother, fourthly, whenever he needs you. You will help your brother whenever he needs you. It's not a love that is in word only, John says, but it's in deed and in truth. It's sincere, it's genuine. It will be ready and willing, if need be, to sacrifice to help the brother who's in need. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Boy, was that a statement? Christ died for us. He laid down his life. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. If your brother or your sister needs help, then brother love is practiced when we're not only ready and willing to help, but we do help. Makes for a happy church. Makes for a happy church. Not individuals on an island, each doing their own thing and thinking their own way, but here we are, a family. And this is my family. This is your family. Fifthly, you will defend your brother when he is attacked. You will defend your brother when he is attacked. It, 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 it should work that way in the real world, but it doesn't always. I remember when I was probably about seven or eight years old, next door neighbor, we had a fight and... Uh, he jumped on top of me, and he had these, he didn't clip his fingernails. He had long fingernails, and he took them just like this and scraped my face while my brother watched. I could have killed him. The kid was stronger than I was. So it doesn't always happen in the real world, but it should. Certainly it should be so in the spiritual family of God, that when a brother is attacked, a sister is attacked, you defend them. You don't heap on the attack. You don't join with them. That's my brother you're talking about. That's my sister. That's how it is with family. Sixthly, you will look out for his best interests 
especially his spiritual welfare. Looking out for their best interest because he's your brother, she's your sister. That's your big concern. It doesn't mean that you're not aware of their temporal needs. You should be. And whenever, as I said, you can help, you help. But it's their spiritual welfare that's so critical. And that means that while indeed you'll put up with a lot from your brother and you'll forgive over and over again and you'll help whenever you can and you'll defend your brother when he's attacked, but it also means that you will not only encourage him, you see, to look after their best interest, not only will you encourage him along that path, but you will also discourage him from sin. And sometimes that just calls for an honest, loving rebuke. Speaking the truth in love. Letting it go and sweeping it under the rug and ignoring it and hoping it will go away is not loving your brother. And if your brother is walking with God, while they might not like the rebuke initially, they will end up thanking you for it and say, I needed to hear that. I didn't like it, but I needed to hear it. Seventh and finally, Brother love means you'll pray for your brother. This looms more and more in my horizon. Much prayer, much blessing. Little prayer, little blessing. Engaging much more in prayer for the family. Brothers and sisters in the family. This is what brother love looks like in practice. And this, the Lord Jesus said, was one of the greatest evidences that we are saved. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. John echoes those words in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. We know it. This is one of the assurances that we've been born again. We actually love the brethren. We have brother love for them. The more of this brother love we practice, the more we enjoy the good life. The less we practice it, the less we enjoy the good life. So, brothers and sisters, let's live the good life. God read his word on our hearts for his own name's sake. We bow our heads in prayer. Let's all seek the Lord.
Father in heaven, we come at the end of this time in the word of the Lord and we realize there's always the need for follow-up to the preaching. It is what takes place after the amen that makes so much difference. We pray, Lord, that the Holy Ghost would plant this word deeply in our souls. We want to see it bring forth much fruit. We thank Thee, Lord, for the clear teaching of the Scriptures regarding the body of Christ and how we are to treat each other. We don't want it, Lord, to be something we know only in our minds and accept to be truth in our hearts. We want, we want to practice brother love. We want to practice sympathy, entering into the joys and sorrows of thy people. Grant this, we pray, all the grace we need to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.